1: Good morning everybody and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane and thank you for tuning in today. A big thank you too to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock and no, we're not wearing lab coats. We never do on this show.
2: Serious fighting words. There's Dr. Ewan. Good morning <laughs> fella. How are you? Good morning. <laughs> you, you doing well? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Having a good week? I oh, know you are. Um... <laughs> we we'll
3: get to that. Yeah, let's uh, talk about that
0: later.
2: How are you, Dr. Jen?
0: Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm, I'm Right. I'm, a little bit scratchy? Yeah, a bit scratchy, so I'll try and cough in the other direction, I think.
1: Did you eat pineapple like I told you to?
0: No, I got this email from Dr Shane during the week telling me lots of fresh pineapple, but I just didn't get the chance, yeah. I'm
1: sorry. It's completely un, unsubstantiated yeah, by well evidence, that's... but for me... <laughs> If I ever, I haven't lost my voice on anything in 25 years of doing the show. It's because when I start getting a sore throat, I just grab a pineapple. I don't even skin it. I just start, <laughs> just start chowing down. Sounds uh, painful. Does that
0: explain all those scars on your cheeks yeah. and the, yeah. the yeah. lips? So,
1: and and you know, not many friends. Um, <laughs> but no, it, I don't know, for me it works. Right, well, I'll so, test it this week. Yeah, we we got to do the,
0: the we got to do the shopping, this Arvo. So I'll put a pineapple on the list, and I'll yeah. we'll let
1: you know. Not in the can. Oh, no. It's got, it's got to be an actual point. And I, yeah, I'm yeah. going to
2: watch Jen eat it, skin and all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tell, me oh, she, tell me if she falls for that one. Dr. <laughs> Ewan, what do you got for us in terms of news? I'd like to talk about sleeping around and parenting. So one of the mysteries, <laughs> okay. yeah, I thought that would get your attention. I'm just wondering if I should put out a, a
1: disclaimer for people who are whether we're okay.
2: So, one of the mysteries is why humans and particularly male humans invest so much time in parenting and um hopefully the hotline the the phones that run too hot right now but it it is a big question and um, mammals are notorious, particularly males, as I said, for not um, parenting very much, so non human m- mammals mm-hmm. um, and it's sort of i guess yeah it 's been a topic of uh, a lot of interest for a long time now, of course, we know um, humans you know uh, sort of have this association with other primates of course and Um, About 8 to 6 million years ago, the first gorillas began to evolve. Chimps and humans, or the human lineage, separated about that time as well. Um, but, of course, we're very similar genetically to chimpanzees. We all know that about 99% roughly. Bonobos are about the same. So very, mm-hmm. very similar genetically. So a study just come out um, in the Royal Society of Open Science um, by Carson Murray et al., and they have looked at um, why it is, or I guess parenting behaviours, in a chimpanzee society. Now, chimpanzees are promiscuous, so they really do sleep around quite a lot. Okay. And so... <laughs> a lot.
1: <laughs> what are the consequences, though? They don't lose their house or anything, do they?
2: No, no, they don't. I'm not Yeah, I'm not sure they sort of get left out and the, the locks get changed or anything like that. Mm. But um, so they had two hypotheses and 25 years of behavioural data to understand why males would actually invest time in parenting. So one of the hypotheses is that you invest time um, with the infants because um, there's benefits from that. The other one is, of course, you're just hanging around the mothers because you might get another mating opportunity um, when <laughs> the time is right.
0: What a sad <laughs> reason to look after your children.
2: Um, but what they did find um, through this study was that, yeah, males actually were not only um, hanging out with infants, but they're able to discern their own infants. So they can actually find their own young that they've sired with a female previously, and they spend time, particularly in the young years. Now, in the young years for a baby chimp, it's high risk because infanticide, that is the killing of young, is mm-hmm. quite common. And okay. so protecting and being around your young is an important thing. So... um. So basically what this study is showing is that there actually is some sort of benefit for males hanging around um, and they're able to find their own young and hang around these um, young. And so they're not just getting a benefit of another mating because they looked at this as well. So if they hang around the mother, they're not necessarily going to father more young with that same female. But it does kind of hint at the fact that, yeah, by being around the young, of course they're... Increasing the survivorship of that young, potentially one would think. So Mm. there's a benefit there, but it's I guess it's really interesting because it kind of gets this. point that parenting or investing paternal care, I should say, so the male investing care of the young, it's actually probably um, evolved quite a long time ago. So much obviously long before us, we turned up as as a species. Um, it's been around for quite a long time. So it's really interesting to understand what might have motivated males to actually start taking care of their own young.
1: And we want to make sure
2: our genes keep going.
1: We do. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Richard Dawkins would love this
2: stuff. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's still unfortunate for the females because the males are still sleeping around pretty much with all the females, but they're just doing a bit of work as well, Yeah being care of the young, so we'll oh, leave it there. Oh, well, no, you know. Yeah, it is. As long as you get a
0: bit of housework done.
2: Not sure. What. <laughs> <laughs> what? I'm not sure what sure that says about humans.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, we're not ex- 99% is not a hundred, is it? It's <laughs> <that's> true. <laughs> Maybe there are some differences. Dr. Jen, what do you got for us?
0: <clears throat> I want to talk about narwhals. Everyone's oh, I love it. favorite. It he doesn't.
1: Or as I call them, the unicorns of the sea. Well, exactly. did you know that,
0: that that came because Vikings used to take their, what we think of as horns, but most people know are actually teeth, mm. used to take it back to Europe and say, we found unicorns, we found unicorns and they leave. In the sea. Yeah, so cool. that's why unicorns of the sea. But um so it's it's not a horn, it's a tooth. It's an extra long left canine tooth that can grow up to two point seven metres long. It's awesome. And there's been so many theories over the years about why you would evolve to have a ruddy great tooth sticking <laughs> out of your head. Because hard to get through doorways, I would have thought. Well Lucky I thought they used no it doorways. to get through don't they use
1: it to get through ice packs and stuff yeah, like that? Is that so
0: because they live in really extreme harsh yeah, conditions, yeah. so off the eastern coast of Canada and Greenland which is, Mm. you know, not much open sea. It's pretty much all ice. So, yeah, so one theory is it's an icebreaker, kind of, you know, Prong your tooth through and split the ice. Yeah. Another is that it's like a fencing foil for fighting because only males have them. So males, you know, kind of battle with each other with using this mm. tooth. Um, another one is that it's actually <laughs> a it's actually a way that a male signals to a female um, his fertility because the length of the tooth is correlated with the size of
2: the testes. Size does count. Yeah. <laughs> How <good is> that?
0: <laughs> so these more okay. female narwhals don't have to swim around trying to find the test. Is they just look at the tooth and go, oh yeah, you got a good
1: one. Saw so that one a mile off.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, and then a couple of years ago, some really interesting <laughs> research came out to show that this tooth it doesn't have the normal enamel protective coating that a tooth would have, and actually it's incredibly sensitive. It's covered in nerve endings, wow. and it's very good at detecting changes in temperature and salinity, which is a way a narwhal can detect things like when the ice sheet is you know growing and shrinking. So that's really important.
1: So there's a whole lot of the narwhals out there at the moment with toothaches.
0: That's right, exactly. Potentially. Because it's all changing. Mm. But then this week some research came out of, um, from the University of Washington, which did a bit more research looking at how they echolocate. So like other dolphins and whales, narwhals send out clicks to echolocate and get a picture of their surroundings. Because obviously when you're really deep down in water, A, the sunlight isn't penetrating through the ice. So it's very dark. Um, so they, you know, they need to have a way of being able to try and get, get a sense of what their environment is around Mm. them. So about a thousand clicks a second, which is pretty impressive. Um, And what they found is that these narwhals actually have the most sensitive sonar of any species so far studied. So they're getting a really high-resolution picture of their environment around them, so it's very directional. So an analogy one of the researchers said, which which made sense to me, they're not sending out a floodlight, kind of getting a sense overall, they're sending out a torch, Mm. getting very specific information. So the question is, well, why would this have evolved, this incredibly sensitive sonar? And the argument is that, well... Because if you live in an environment like that, you're still a whale. You're still a mammal. You have to surface every four to six minutes to breathe. You've got to find really little cracks mm. in the ice so that you mm. can get up to breathe. Because if you're under this huge ice sheet, it's really important that you actually find small things like cracks in ice.
2: But what about the girls?
0: Well, that's what I want to know. Because if this argument For is it's all about survival... <laughs> I yeah that's exactly my point because you can say oh it's very easy if it's a s- signal of fertility or it's about fighting then it makes sense that it's males only but it's actually about survival and finding places to breathe I mm. don't know do females follow males around
1: Well I think I think with many of these things in evolution though they started off in one way. Yep. And then they ended up being mm. used Something in multiple else. ways. So, uh, so it may well have been these things are required to get you through the ice. That mm. might have been the first call in the males are generally bigger. So they were the ones to do it anyway. Mm. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. But yep. then now, oh, oh, actually, it's also connected to those who have higher testosterone levels, have bigger, you t- blah, blah, blah. Yep. And you, you, you count, exactly. you count all those things together now, but you have to find out what the root one was. Mm. And it, it, like it may started. well have been a simpler one. In mm. fact, it may be one that's not there anymore.
0: Mm. Well, it's and, fascinating that there's Mm. no enamel protecting this tooth that it's actually this ultra sensitive device look you know picking up temperature salinity sonar everything and i think that's cool
1: yeah it's cool stuff i i kept trying to think what would be my top five list of marine animals and the narwhals in there the hammerhead sharks in there yeah Yeah, there's there's some other things giant squid for sure don't know about that bigger doesn't just get on the list for me what about
0: whale sharks
1: Wild well, sharks, yeah, yeah, kind of lumbering. Um, but you know, <laughs> but I, I love, I, I just love the hammerhead. You know, the, the, yeah. the way it moves and its speed, the way it can track, and you know, that giant sort of
2: cuttlefish stuff. though, they can change to almost any shape, yeah. any color. Cuttlefish are pretty cool. Yeah, you've got to have cuttlefish. Yeah, in yeah. There. yeah
1: so there's some.
2: Anyway, uh, we could, we could go on for a while that because <laughs> we, we,
1: we should generate a, a, a list of top ten uh, marine creatures That'll that would be. With uh, most, they've got to be awesome though. they are got to be completely yep. unique and superpowers. Uh, you know, seahorses. Sea I yeah. love, love a good yeah. seahorse. Um, Males so, do their bit there too. Oh, they do. say that's very they good
0: do. for male yeah, paternity, you know. Males do it all.
1: I don't really care about that stuff. I mean, as long as, <laughs> as long as we're all contributing to the species generation. Hang on, why are we being marinists? If we're going to
0: do a marine list, aren't we going to do a terrestrial list too?
1: Well, I just do it by the, you know, the sheer quantity of life and most of it's in the, in the sea. Sorry, Jim.
0: Well, that means we need to do only invertebrates. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's
1: one of these Fun. whales. It's getting out of control. All right. We better take a break for some music, folks. We've got a pretty big show for you here today. Um, uh, coming up a little bit later, we're going to have Dr. Edward Hawkins, Edwin Hawkins, sorry, from the Walter Eliza Hall Institute with some amazing new research on uh, leukemia and, and why it survives chemotherapy, which is just fascinating. We're looking forward to that. And after the break, we'll have an interview I recorded during the week. I actually recorded this one underwater, so the sound <laughs> quality is not that great. Um, with Lisa Randall, who's a Harvard physicist who's uh, out in Australia doing a bit of a tour and giving a number of talks. Um, very interesting stuff on dark matter. Were so their we're,
0: hammerheads circling? They, they were they circling the me.
1: They were circling me as I was trying to get no, the no, Skype connection <laughs> to, to work better. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but alas, sometimes the technology is not there. Anyway, uh, first of all, I'm going to play you a track. This one's called, um, Strong by Alana Aldea. And, uh, yeah, enjoy this, folks. You're listening to 3 Triple R on this beautiful sunny Sunday. 3 Triple Listening to 3RRR. Now, uh, we have something special for you now, which I recorded uh, during the week, and I do do humbly apologize for the, the quality of the recording. I'm a hack. Well, no, actually, (laughs) it's not true. We had a very bad Skype uh, conversation um, link, and it was a bit of a shame, but I did the best to clean it up, so please bear with us as we play this. It's only about eight minutes, so it's nice and short, but it is a good conversation with Professor Lisa Randall. Now, Lisa's an American theoretical physicist and an expert on particle physics and cosmology. Um, She is on the faculty at Harvard University and is doing a tour in Australia, and the event dates... Uh, for Melbourne, well, there's one on the 18th of this month, which is this coming Friday, and it's from 7:15 p.m. on at the National, uh, the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. And if you want to have a look at that after this interview, just do a Google on Lisa Randall, and it's R-A-N-D-A-double-L, or you can have a look at the. <coughs> think inc website and they will have all the details for you there so let me um play this interview for you again apologies for the sound quality but i think it might be uh, just bearable it's worth a listen so hang in there You're listening to 3RRR i'm dr shane and our guest today is professor lisa randall Lisa is an American theoretical physicist and an expert on particle physics and cosmology. She's currently the Frank B. Baird Jr. Professor of Science on the physics faculty at Harvard University. Lisa, welcome to Triple R.
4: It's nice to be here. Thank you.
1: Now, you have an upcoming trip to Australia. Um, Tell us a bit about that.
4: Oh, it should be fun. I'm going to be talking a little bit about various aspects of science and also my recent book, Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs, where I uh, look into this Dark matter, cosmology,
1: the solar system, the galaxy, life on Earth. Lots of good stuff. So I'm looking forward to being able to talk about that, as now, well as just uh, talk more generally. Sounds great. Now, let's start off with dark matter, because this is a concept that most of our listeners would have heard of before. Why is it that we need this particular concept these days in cosmology? Well, it's more than a concept. It's actually something we know is out there, pretty much. Um, th- although we don't know what it's
4: made up of, we have indirect evidence that it exists, namely because of its its influence on other things, like stars, even in our galaxy. So we know that there's five times as much energy carried by matter called dark matter that doesn't interact with light um, than by ordinary matter.
1: And so um, that's um, why it's worthy of study. We know it's there, and we want to know what it is. So what what sort of... when When we talk about the indirect evidence that we have at the moment, or even direct evidence in the way that there's something there. Can you give us a few examples? Like if we look at something like our own galaxy, what, what is it about the operation of our galaxy that tells us we need something like dark matter to be in existence? Well, if you look at the rotation speeds of stars, how quickly they orbit in our
4: galaxy, you find that they're much faster than they could be accounted for by ordinary matter. If they were going that fast and there were no more matter, they would just fly away. So you need to have additional matter in order to account for the fact that these stars stay in our galaxy. And it also there's evidence in the cosmic microwave background radiation. So there's really a lot of evidence for the existence of dark matter.
1: Now, before we get on to what dark matter potentially actually is, what do we know that it's not? Um,
4: <laughs> it's not you or me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not ordinary matter. It's not made up of atoms. It's not made up of stuff that interacts not sure exactly what you're asking there, but it, you, you know it's probably a particle. Um, yep. It could be something else, but it's probably made up of elementary particles. And those elementary particles are distinct from the particles we know about.
1: And what's this concept of dark light that I've I've noticed in a couple of your um, the videos of you on YouTube? You introduced this concept of dark light compared to normal light.
4: Yeah, so we have a proposal that maybe dark matter does have interactions, but just not the same interactions that we have in our world. Or that is to say that we see, it's still our world. but So, for example, we interact through light, um, which dark matter doesn't experience, because it doesn't carry a charge under the kind of light that we experience. Maybe dark matter, or at least a fraction of the dark matter, experiences its own light that we don't experience. So maybe it carries charges that we don't feel or observe. And then dark matter could interact with itself,
1: even if it didn't interact with us. Now, when we look at something like, you've mentioned the the sort of large-scale stuff, like on the galactic and and beyond, but what about things like our own solar system? I mean, we've sent, you know, exquisitely coordinated probes even out to beyond Pluto now. If we are doing that, is there an expectation that we would see dark matter in our own solar system and would that not affect the... The, the way in which we direct these probes and the corrections we have to make, or is this something that we just wouldn't see in our local area?
4: So even though there's five times the amount of dark matter, the standard scenario is that dark matter is distributed over this enormous spherical halo. So that when we're in the Milky Way, we're in this very dense region of ordinary matter that has collapsed. Mm-hmm. Basically what happens is ordinary matter radiates and collapses into a dense dark disk, or sorry, into a dense disk. Um and so therefore when we in the region where we live there's much more ordinary matter than dark matter is the standard scenario, even though there is overall much more dark matter. Um we have considered a hypothesis that dark matter too radiates or at least a fraction of it, so there could be dark matter inside the disk. In which case there is a chance of encountering it, but that's quite a different scenario than the standard
1: one. Mm. Now we've recently had this incredible vindication of the general theory of relativity with the measurement of gravitational waves um, over the last 12 months, it, it feels as though we have a good understanding of those aspects of the way the universe works. Is, is it still possible, do you think, that we, we are getting that part wrong and maybe maybe dark matter is not something that we need as a result of that or are we is that squared away, in your opinion?
4: Well, you know, dark matter really seems to be out there. Um, you know, there's other evidence that things called, like, called the bullet cluster, there's something called the bullet cluster and other examples like it, which are clusters of galaxies that merge together and the gas gets stuck inside and the dark matter passes through. Mm-hmm. But it's very, very hard to explain something like the bullet cluster observation with anything other than dark matter. And I also just want to emphasize that, you know, people think dark matter is such a radical thing, but it's not that radical. It just says not all matter is the same as our matter. And I don't see any reason that it should be. I'm mm-hmm. um, changing the laws of gravity would be radical, but saying that there's dark matter I mean, although it sounds um, inconceivable to people, just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not there.
1: Yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. I take com- comfort in the number of neutrinos that have passed through the two of us while we've been having this conversation.
4: Exactly. Yeah. In the case of dark matter and the dinosaurs, I talk a lot about all the interesting astronomical measurements you can do to try to establish whether there is dark matter lying in the disk. I mean, of course, there's the consequence. For killing off the dinosaurs, which is a fun thing to think about. But the way we'd actually test it is by looking for the gravitational potential in the Milky Way and seeing what its implications are.
1: Now, I don't want you to give away the, uh, the all the details of, of your new book, but the connection between dark matter and dinosaurs is interesting. Uh, are you proposing in the book that the, the end of the dinosaurs is somehow linked to, to dark matter itself?
4: Well, the, the theory, you know, I couldn't possibly give you all the details because I give details in the book about just about every aspect of what builds up our universe. Yep. Um, But it is framed within the context of this theory I have of how dark matter might not have directly killed the dinosaurs, but might have triggered the meteoroid that did kill off the dinosaurs and and three-quarters of the species on the planet 66 million years ago.
1: Now, before we let you go, because I realize we're almost out of time, what, what's your uh, schedule going to be like in, in Australia? How many cities are you visiting? And, and what, what sort of things will people uh, be seeing when they come along?
4: Well, I'm going to be in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. And um, there'll be a mixture of conversation and um, talking and um, probably some interviews. Um, so you know, just general, broad discussion. But also I hope there's a lot of discussion about the recent um, work I'm doing on dark matter.
1: You know, and also just my opinions on just about everything, so should be fun. yeah, I notice you often put your opinion out on on scientific thinking and its uniqueness Do, do you feel at the moment that we um as scientists uh, are making the sort of cases that we need to in society, are we getting that right? i mean there's such a a struggle with with climate and so forth at the moment, and here in Australia we've seen it around vaccinations and other areas. Are, are we doing this right at the moment, or do we need to You're work together?
4: bit harder? in Australia? Are you kidding? You guys are messing up that big
1: time. Oh, we are. <laughs> we are. We're, we're doing. we we're, we're. We're doing better than our best at messing it up. Yeah.
4: Um, no. I mean, look, we have a horrible election coming up tomorrow. I don't think anyone's doing a very good job. I don't know what's going on in the world today. You know, which I try my best to think that if people understand better. Uh, the underlying science that they're not if they're not afraid of it, if they think we are trying to keep, give them access to it, that people will start thinking correctly, and that is one of the underlying themes in the latest book is to try to get people to understand, you know, how we got here, what we we're doing when we we're changing the planet, so people can think a little more broadly about that. Mm. So no, I mean clearly, someone somewhere, someone's not doing a great job because we're living in an insane world right now. Yeah. But meanwhile, underneath that, we have these great scientific advances. So.
1: Well, Lisa, thank you very much. By the time this goes to air, um, you will have gone through the singularity, which is your election tomorrow. I hope uh, it doesn't require you to move to Australia, although we'd certainly love to have you here. So thanks for chatting to us today. Great. Thank you. Well, there you go, folks. That was uh, Lisa Randall. Sorry about, again, the audio quality there. I did record that underwater. Um, <laughs> <coughs> microphone. With, with
0: Hammerhead Shark circling. I thought yeah. you were remarkably composed.
1: Well, I was, you know, but I, you know, it's not the first time out of the gate, so, uh, yeah, it worked. <laughs> anyway, we're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in a moment. We're going to be talking to a Wee High researcher who's doing the most amazing work on leukaemia and the reason why it manages to hide away when we try and treat it. So stay tuned. You're listening to Triple R. It's uh, Sunday. It's about 27 minutes past 11. I'm Dr. Shane. Here's some music for you. Uh, you're listening to 3RRR, it's Einstein and go-go time. In the studio with us now is Dr. Edwin Hawkins from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Edwin, welcome to 3RRR. Thanks so much for having me here today. Now, y- when, when I saw the, the press release about your work and it was sent through, it was pretty exciting. So I, I said to the, the many minions... Actually, we don't have minions. <laughs> <to RRR. laughs> my, good, my good colleague, Elizabeth from 3RRR, said, make sure you book Ed, Edwin in because we want to talk about this. This is uh, incredible stuff. Your work is revolving around leukemia and why it survives the chemotherapy treatments first of all let's start with leukemia itself just give us a
3: quick rundown again of what leukemia is what type of cancer it is sure so leukemia is a a cancer of white blood cells and the problem is is we lose control about how these cells grow and how they die and they expand a lot and essentially what happens is the, a lot of the the normal parts and organs in the body start to function incorrectly. So we have a lot of problems with the bone marrow. It shuts down. It doesn't work because of this overcrowding of these cells growing, and then we can't produce blood cells. We have problems that are... Um, but because we're not getting oxygen around our body, we're having a lot of problems. We, we can't fight infection. So that's a, a quick summary of what leukemia is. And the okay. big problem is... We treat people and they respond very well the first time they get their chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. Then, after a period of time, they'll relapse with disease, and these rates are very high. 40% in adults, 25% in pediatric cases. And that leukemia, the second time, is almost completely resistant the first treatment they've had. And that is the question that we've been trying to answer for such a long time. Now, now, talk us through the the treatment with chemotherapy. I mean, what, what's actually happening
1: in the body when you do that? Because my my sort of very simple understanding is that chemotherapy kills off the parts of the body that are, you know, evolving and changing the fastest. And so, if you get those, get all of them that's great but it doesn't always happen
3: is, is that how it works? That's exactly how it works um, and we've, we've always wondered why these certain cells um, were not being affected and as you touched on so these the chemotherapies work by targeting the fast growing cells the cells that are out of control so when we the, the problems that are synonymous with, with chemotherapy are things like hair falling out but we know that these are adverse effects that we're willing to accept because we're mm. getting the dangerous cells The problem with the leukaemia cells is we've never understood why these cells survive, whereas more population of them don't get hit. And we've thought that they've gone to a special area and they've gone to sleep. That's what we've thought for about... 30 or 40 years. It was suggested in the 1970s mm. that there was a special part in the body, a niche, um, where these cells would go and they would they would go to sleep um, and that's why the chemotherapy didn't work. And then we'd take it away and they would come back to life and they would re the disease.
1: Um, so, so on that, can I ask, the, the, the part I don't understand about that explanation, because we've, we've had guests on the show about this before, mm. I get them going to sleep and not being killed off in the round of chemo I don't get why they're resistant the next time you try after they yep.
3: come back awake. Can you yep. explain that to me? Well, that's the big question. Yeah, that is the big question. And that's what we hit on here is that we went into this project expecting to find what I've just outlined hmm. to you. Hmm. And that's not what we found at all. Right. right. So it's completely not what we found. We found that they didn't go to a special area at all. They were racing around the body. Um, they didn't really care. They did not give a, a stuff. <laughs> so, so, close. Yeah. So when we talk about what we're going to do for patients in the future, w- why it's such a big discovery is we've chopped off one leg of that disease mm-hmm. straight off. Mm-hmm. There are so many treatments that have been angled towards trying to find this area where these cells hide and how to target them. Um, and we now know, especially with the type of leukemia that we look like we looked at and one thing I have to stress is we now have to go and look at all the different types of leukemia there are right. very many different forms of them make sure that this is true for all of them, but we now know that that 's not true so What did we find? Well, we found that a very small population of these cells were completely resistant. And that's because it's it's like Darwinian selection. There was a very, very small population of cells that existed Mm. in that massive, massive population of leukemia cells when we started the treatment and that's why they survived mm. it wasn't anything fancy and special i mean i mean this
1: I, I all this is coming back to me now i remember at some stage there was talk of this being related to stem cells and that was the way they were hiding i think at some exactly. point exactly
3: well. yeah exactly and that was where the theory came from as far as leukemia cells and we came back to the stem cell for blood mm. that stem cell is called a hemopoietic stem cell when you have a bone marrow transplant that is the cell that is being transplanted into your body. It can make all the blood cells that you need. The hemopoietic stem cell is an amazing cell because it survives throughout the entire lifetime of a person, mm. makes blood cells, but it can stay asleep and make more cells. So all the theories that we had about these leukemia cells being asleep came from what we knew about the healthy cells. Mm. So it, it's science is such a funny Hel- thing. <laughs> how convenient. <laughs> yeah,
2: so, So when I heard you talking, I immediately thought of natural selection. So exactly. you've got a huge number of cells and you apply a treatment. A lot of them die, some of them survive, and then go on to do their thing. I don't know very much about chemotherapy and how it's done. So I guess my question is, when you're applying the therapy... Do you apply a broad range of things that would kill those cells? because if you just apply you know one cocktail, shall we say that it's going to kill a large number of cells, then of course, yes, it does that, but then, like you say, then the ones that survive then go on to do their thing. Is there lots of research around essentially applying multiple different types of treatments so that you've got less chance of cells making it through that first round, if yeah. you know what
3: I mean. Yep, you're exactly right. You hit, you hit the nail on the head. Um, and I tell you what, we went through the, the wonderful review process that every scientist has to go <laughs> through, and we were asked to put more and more different types of leukemia, uh, sorry, chemotherapy onto these leukemia cells, and look what happened. And you're exactly right. The more chemotherapy you put, on the more different types. So some of them work by stopping the cells from dividing. Um, some work by stopping them in, in their, their process of making more DNA. Some stop them in the way they can, um, reorganize proteins inside the cell. So as you start to stack on more and more of these different crucial processes, we start to get fewer and fewer cells surviving. And those ones that do survive are very unique. So you're exactly right. So, that comes to what are we going to do next? And we're doing, we're looking at two things. Well, not we. Everybody in the field is looking at doing this. We're trying to find what the magic bullet is, right? What's the magic bullet? What's the extra thing that we need to add on top to get those resistant cells? Um, and there's some wonderful work that's been done for. Um, for some types of leukemia that is that is coming out on the market soon and you've probably heard about it venetoclax which is targeting one protein that's mutated in some types of cells uh, leukemia cells and that might be the extra little bit of the cocktail that we need on top that's going s- to that extend this period till these cells relapse but again what we now know is that these cells are racing around the body they're not hiding what we've tried to do is add on, uh, essentially, little proteins that will stick to the legs of the cells and stop them from running around. That is working, and that is, we're having a question now.
0: Hmm. Oh no, finish your sentence. i will just <laughs> so that
3: that is working um, quite well in the the preliminary experiments we're doing, um, and that that relates to one finding that we had, which which was the cells aren't moving to an area; they're not stopped in their tracks, and they're not asleep. They're running around the body and actually moving faster than they ever were before Mm. so completely Mm. against again the theory so if we target the proteins that they use as their their legs and their ways of moving around the body that's actually working well in the in the initial experiments that we're doing as well so that might be the extra thing that we add on top
0: Mm. so the fact you now know these cells far from hiding are actually racing around crazily does that shed any light on why relapse rates excuse me relapse rates are higher in adults than
3: in children because you said that was quite different it's very different and no we don't understand it Mm. Mm. there's so many things about pediatric and adult leukemia that we don't understand um Mm. uh, whether it's because sometimes the the nature of the mutation the type of the cancer will be so similar, but why these rates are different, we just don't know. So I'm sorry I can't answer that. Mm. Mm. It's
0: just fascinating that the relapse rates are so different. Yeah, they they
3: big are big so difference. different, yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah. Now, Edwin, before we
1: let you go, um, I just wanted to sort of touch on the way in which you went about making these measurements because – it sounds a lot more like a dynamic series of measurements that you've been making rather than the traditional sort of static images people make of cancers. T- tell us just a little bit about that because it's obviously what's sort of given you this new insight into
3: these things moving rapidly rather than just hiding out. Exactly, and it's it's a labour of love. It started in um in two thousand and six here in Melbourne, when we were videotaping um the the precursor cells of of leukemia, and we were we were videotaping them just in a dish, and we were doing that for five days, right. And we we realised how much more we could learn about these cells if we could follow them for vast amounts of time. Mm. Now, when you go into living tissue, that becomes so much more complicated. <laughs> um, and the technology to go deep into living tissue, that was working really well. In fact, that's been working so well for years. The limiting factor was to be able to come and look at very large areas and to be looking at it for days instead of static or hours. Um, so the information that have been generated about leukemias last year about six or seven months before our publication was 20 minutes so they had 20 minutes of of imaging on leukemia cells and then we were bumping it up to 14 hours and then we were able to do it for days and we've Mm. actually gone for two or three weeks imaging the leukemias now and the way we did that was we built special 3d printed optical windows Uh, And that enabled us to preserve the tissue and come back and re-image it and look at it again and again. And we did one extra thing is that we, we built a lock and key mechanism so that when we went and put that sample on the microscope again, we could come back to the exact same area. Acquire a large amount of data like Google Earth, and and that's what we've talked about a lot, and then zoom into the area that we wanted to collect this, this, this footage of the leukemia cells in action, and then come back to that same area day after day Mm. after day. And that's, that's been the key, um, addition for us, and that enabled us to, to make a lot of our findings. And somebody's going to take that and they're going to do it even further. Yeah. Yeah. Now look, the technologies are changing
1: at an Mm. incredible rate, not, Edwin, this is exceptionally exciting work and uh, I think most most of our listeners will have known someone or interacted with someone with leukemia. I mean, personally, my grandfather died of leukemia, so we've all experienced what an incredibly difficult disease it is and how hard it is to treat over the protracted period, not just the first round but the protracted period. So thanks for chatting to us today and good luck with the continued work. I certainly hope this explodes. You've published it in Nature, which is fantastic. Congratulations and keep it up. Thanks very much for having me. Dr Edwin Hawkins is from the Walter Eliza Hall Institute doing this amazing work on leukemia and why it survives the multiple attacks from chemotherapy. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in a moment. I'm going to talk to you about another special researcher who's still with us but in his 80s and then we'll give you a little bit of science news towards the end. triple. We're back. Uh, if you're wondering what that track was, it was um, When Saturday Comes with Robot. And the one before that was Matthew and the Atlas uh, Temple. And the first one was Alama Aldea with Strong. Now, uh, important information from the station. I get my serious voice We're on Where all he is. All this week, Triple R's Drive programs will be live on location from the State Library of Victoria's Forecourt as part of the Melbourne Music Week. By the way, it's our fortieth birthday, is How
0: good's that? Happy birthday! Too.
1: Tune, <laughs> tune in or head down on Monday, November fourteenth, through the Friday, November eighteenth, daily between four and seven p.m. Catch Maps with Phoebe Squared, Double Bounce with Vaughn Quinn, Test Pattern with Josh Earl filling in, uh, Breaking and Entering with Lauren Taylor and Simon Winkler, and Skull Cave with Paul, Paulie P, and Nicole Tadpole filling in for the ghost and there'll be live performances across the entire week including the meanies the dust millers uh remy uh lower plenty the harpoons damien cole's disco machine napalm uh <coughs> pillow pro jen coughing SK Simeon, sorry. Uh, Dan Kelly and Jade Imagine and there'll be stacks of guests propping, uh, dropping in to celebrate Triple R's 40th birthday and the launch of the exhibition which is happening down there at Triple R and um, you'll be able to find a daily program on the Triple R website if you're interested. So check that out folks, it's gonna be really cool. Now, uh, I'm using something called the microphone right now, you two. <laughs> Did you work that
0: out? Thank goodness you told us. Now there I, wa-
1: I want to tell you about someone in history that um, I don't know why I decided to do this this week. But um, I was sitting at home, and while I was recording the interview of Lisa Randall, and we were having trouble with the audio. I started to have this great affinity for microphones. All of a sudden, thought maybe we should talk about that. So I wanted to talk to you about a guy, an awesome eighty-five-year-old, still going strong. Um, named James West, or James Edward Maceo West, just in case you accidentally confused this person with an Australian journalist. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, this is an African-American who is, um, was born in 1931 and has four kids, and basically he worked for Bell Labs, which was one of the major telecommunications and technology companies in the US, and he worked there for some 40 years before he retired from Bell Labs and became a professor of electrical and computer engineering at Johns Hopkins University, which is some small university apparently is very good. Um, (laughs) (coughs) Has a good good hospital. (laughs) Anyway, um, of great interest, though, was the fact that he was involved in one of the most pinnacle inventions of the microphone back in 1962 when he invented something called the foil electric uh, microphone with Gerhard Sessler, and this this microphone was not the first microphone to be invented, but it was substantially better than everything else and really cheap to produce. And there were still a lot of people at the time who said, well, the quality's not there. And at the time, actually, you know, the quality of some of the, the much more expensive microphones was better. But over the years, um, that has changed. So mm-hmm. today you get microphones made in the exact same way, pretty much, though they are comparable to some of the best quality microphones in the world. And apparently to this day more than a billion of these microphones are still being produced every year wow. more than more 90 percent of the microphones in use in the world are actually of the design of james west so this is an inc- incredible um person in history who most people probably never even heard of so if you've got a smartphone or anything like that you're you're using a microphone many of these microphones are designed by james west and pretty cool stuff now um he didn't just do microphones, he did a lot of other stuff, but he did some a couple of things that were really cool. So one of the things he did, and you can, you can see where he was going with all these microphone studies, is he looked at the acoustic levels that were experienced in, in major hospitals and he found that they were unhealthy levels of noise both to staff <laughs> and to the patients. Oh the irony. So, you know, you go into hospitals, they're quite noisy places and, mm. and you know, too much noise is is problematic for humans. You know, we're not we're not good with a lot of noise. Oh, we man. tend to run away from it. That tends to be our, our, our best option. And so by stud, by carefully studying acoustic levels in some of the hospitals in the US he was able to determine that these levels were too high. So this was interesting. Um while he was at bell labs he also put together a huge number of programs for um those who you typically wouldn't find in the sciences or engineering in particular african-americans so there were a number of programs and something like 500 new recruits came through bell labs as a result of him specifically wow. uh, african-american recruits um and the programs that he put forward so and you know, he did that for most of most of well, he's still doing it i assume but for most of his life um now, of course, I should mention that the first microphones were produced back in the 1870s, so it was sort of almost 100 years um, since the first ones were produced, and, and depending on whose history you read, it's either a guy named David Hughes or um, Thomas Edison. <laughs> Uh, good old Tommy Edison, he claimed a lot of stuff, I think, but um, uh, I think history is now on the side of um, David Hughes, although I think Edison might have ended up with the patent for it, so that was a while back and and These microphones are based on this sort of capacitor design, so they 're pretty fascinating if If you know what a capacitor is folks um, it 's a pretty simple electrical item which is basically just two plates metal plates that are separated by a very carefully designed distance and you put charge on these plates and you can hold energy in these Mm -hmm. you can kind of store it a bit like a battery for a short period of time and then it gets dissipated and this if you use one of these in a microphone you can actually what you can do is you can change the way that charge heads between these two plates depending on the surface of these plates. And if you imagine these surfaces deforming slightly because of noise, you can then get an electrical signal to come out of it because of that deformation. So this is essentially how you produce a microphone. And they're pretty special, these capacitor microphones, although back in the day they were called condensers. They weren't called capacitors. And this is sort of how most of these microphones work. So we we have a lot to... Um, thank this James West for, because basically, well, in some regards, the stuff people have to listen to, they shouldn't thank him for, but... Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, but that's not his fault, though. That's he, not can't his fault, though. he can't take Except responsibility that okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, that. Well,
1: you, know, you, you would hope that we'll let people be their own... Their own um, their own judge, but I just thought it was fascinating to read that this, um, this one guy spent so much time mm-hmm. doing this amazing work on something that we all sort of take for granted now yep. and billions of these things are sold every year and no one really knows the name James West. I think that's so true for so, so many things. Yeah. Yeah. We
0: don't know anything about
1: people who've done yeah. this. Job well done, work. James.
0: So a, yeah, hats um, off to you, mate. Yep. Yeah.
1: And of course, this is a type of transducer and transducers are something that, you know, convert one form of energy to another. So it might be something like a, a, a speaker on your, on your audio system, it might be a microphone, it might be a sensor, something that converts one sort of energy to another. We might have a month of transducers next year just to get all excited. <laughs> uh, you know, sorry. Um, anyway. Or not. So, or not. Um, well, there's some fascinating transducers. Don't get me started, Dr. Jane. No, let's, uh, let's move because on. Because <laughs> there are some fascinating ones around. Let's do a little bit of science news, though, before we clear up. We've got a few minutes left. Um, both of you look at me like, me, me, pick me, pick me.
0: Let's fight
2: I'm going to jump in. You would go. Because otherwise fine. you'll cough. <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, I'll be fine. So you were teasing me before, Shane, about Trump. Um, we are now living in the Trump scene. Yeah. and like, <laughs> like it or not. Um, but there we was are? a paper that came out uh, in Science Advances looking at climate change. And I talk about Trump because, of course, Trump has said he doesn't believe in climate change and he's not going to do very much to stop the impacts of climate change, which is a fairly terrifying thought. Or well, more specifically, he believes it's uh, uh, ployed by the Chinese. Yeah, yeah. Well, that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, this research... Um, by Friedrich and and others, was looking at the acceleration in a sense of climate change. So we know we have predictions, and, of course, we've got the Paris Mm -hmm. Agreement, which is trying to keep us below 2 degrees, ideally, and beyond 2 degrees things get pretty nasty. And current predictions, of course, with business as usual say, if we just do what we're doing, 2.6, 4.8 degree increase by about 2,100. What this doesn't really account for is the fact that the impact of um, greenhouse gases... Uh, can actually get worse as we get warmer, so as things increase. And this has to do with what, uh, um, essentially what's called radiated forcing, which is to do with how gases um, influence energy balance um, as, as things advance. And they looked at an 800,000-year um, time slice um, from sea surface temperatures as well as some pretty fancy paleoclimate modelling. Take-home messages, unfortunately, that as things get warmer, rather than looking at those um, moderate levels of increase, which is still bad enough, we're looking at 4.8 by 7.4 7. degree increase in temperature. Which is diabolical. Um, And what that essentially means, and you'll appreciate this, Shane, is that um, Venus, we think, and NASA thinks, actually was a planet that was potentially inhabitable um, for life a long time ago, but then had runaway greenhouse um, change Mm. and now has um, temperatures over 400 degrees C, um, essentially no water on the planet, and has an atmosphere that is dominated by CO2, and sulfuric acid. So I'd suggest that we don't become like Venus, um, but this research suggests that, yeah, runaway climate change um, can actually get worse as things get warmer, which, when you think about what's happening recently with increased temperatures and climate instability and early warning signals, is a bit of a concern.
1: Yeah. And the age-old uh, issue of when you're dealing with complex systems, presuming you understand them completely is probably... Not quite. That,
2: get, they, you know. that, that they made that point. <coughs> uncertainty, yeah. large amount of uncertainty, but certainly I think enough to be concerned about there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I, you know, when I jump out of a 747, I don't know exactly where I'm going to land. <laughs> But they have a vague idea the ground's going to be involved. And it won't be pretty. (laughs) It won't be pretty, yeah. Dr. Jen, what do you got for us?
0: I'm going to try and end on a positive note rather than getting exceedingly depressed about becoming (laughs) Venus. I want to tell you about some research that came out this week about tickling. Because tickling, it sounds so frivolous, but it's actually a really important area of study because there's lots that we don't... Don't you dare tickle me. There's lots of things we don't understand, but we don't know why we laugh when we get tickled because most of us say we don't like being tickled. We know that we can't tickle ourselves unless you've got schizophrenia, in which case you can tickle yourself Um, but we don't know why it evolved we don't know what its purpose is but it turns out that rats are very good models to try and understand human tickling and research over a number of years have shown us that rats give off these little ultrasonic squeaks which are their expressions of pleasure and their version of laughing mm. um and so some paper a paper that came out in science this week looks at where in the brain is actually being um, activated when the rats are giving off their little their little version of a giggle and it turns out that deep in the region of the brain um called the somatosensory cortex which processes t- um, touch is where you know stuff's happening when they're being tickled but there are Research has actually showed that you can just stimulate this area of the brain directly using an electrode, oh boy. and it makes the rats do their little ultrasonic squeak. So we've kind of identified the tickling centre of the brain. We've been able to work out exactly where in the brain um, this tickling activity is going on. But interestingly, it's mood dependent. If you stress rats out, if you put them in bright light, or put them up on a high platform, which is known to cause anxiety and fear in rats, they can't laugh. They can't. They don't respond to the tickle. Well, that's
1: not a surprise, is it?
0: So tickling. Appears to be this like, kind of social play, wow. fun thing that's got really deep, uh, you know, a long evolutionary background.
1: Well, oh, folks, uh, for the rest of Sunday, do a bit of exploration on this. That's yourself. right. <laughs> Grab a stranger on the street and tickle them.
0: No, you can't tickle strangers, Shane. Yeah. Sorry,
1: well, it doesn't work, or you can't. <laughs> there's, there's laws
2: around.
0: It that. doesn't work because it stresses
2: them out. <laughs> oh, because they're stressed out when you that's come right. up
1: here. Yeah, well, yeah. Oh well, you know. Oh, it Try it. D-
0: Report back next week. Yeah, it
1: was a good idea. Um, <laughs> now, a big thank you to uh, to WeHi for um, providing us with a guest today and also to Think Inc. for arranging the interview with uh, Lisa Randall. Dr. Ewan, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Dr. Jen, thanks for coming in. I know you haven't been that well the last few
0: days. So oh, I wouldn't miss it for the world, Dr. You've, Shane. You've
1: managed to get through with minimal number of coughs. Talking well science
0: with you guys doesn't get better than that on a Sunday morning.
1: Uh, that's true. Well, we've had fun. <laughs> we're going to have some more science again for you next uh, next week and, <laughs> and next year. And, next year. Um, and we're going to have the guy who did <laughs> the spiral graph for climate coming oh, in soon. Very exciting. Awesome. Yeah, anyway, um, that's a few weeks off. I'm Dr. Shane. We're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. Have a wonderful Sunday and thanks for listening to